I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. How are you doing, listeners? I'm just doing a quiet hey there, because Rose doesn't like it. And uh, I don't want her to stop walking, as she has now done. Come on, Rosie. Come on, sweetie. Let's go. There you go. It's nice out here, Rosie, honestly. Look, I mean, we're pretty lucky. What are you eating? You Oh, Rosie... You hound. (laughs) Don't eat that. That is literally the plops of another creature. We can get you some stuff that's at least half as good as that when we get home. Come on, sweetie. Don't eat plops. Don't tell me what to do. I didn't want to come for this walk. And the very least you can do is allow me to enjoy some of these little Maltesers of plops. Have you finished? I have. Oh, man. It's a lot of negotiation to be done with dog legs these days. It's really quite a lovely morning. Out here in the Norfolk countryside in the early part of October 2023. I wanted to put up this podcast on the weekend, but it wasn't possible because we were hosting a big birthday party for my daughter, who was 15. And so she had quite a few of her pals from school and her various sport teams over on the weekend and you can imagine what that was like podcasts especially if you have children of your own and you have hosted a teen party or maybe if you don't have children you can remember what those parties were like 15 as well I think maybe they're the gnarliest ones because you are in so many ways still very much a child And yet it feels as though all the most exciting, verboten parts of adulthood are within your grasp. And one way for you to express that is to just drink too much booze. And the phrase pre-drinking is one that I hear from a lot of teens. So they turn up to the party already pretty well oiled and then... It's puking time. No serious casualties, I'm happy to say. And I think a good time was had by nearly all. But it certainly didn't make me miss those days, I have to be honest. I mean, yes, it would be lovely to be 15 again in some ways. But those Larry parties are not the part that I really miss. Okay, let me tell you a bit about podcast number 207 which features an enjoyable and rambling conversation with English writer and musician Billy Bragg. Bragg facts Stephen William Bragg was born in 1957 in Barking. That's in the county of Essex which hovers above the east of London. Billy has been described by the Daily Mail newspaper as a left-wing rabble-rousing singer-songwriter 
which, given that he must have roused a rabble or two in his time, is true. Billy learned to play guitar in his teens with the help of his friend and next-door neighbour, Philip Wigg, a.k.a. Wiggy, with whom, in 1977, he formed a punky pub rock band called Riff Raff that recorded a few singles but split a few years later. Odd jobs and even a short stint in the army followed, but Billy's frustration with the kind of music clogging up the charts in the early 80s, that, to his ears, wasn't really saying anything, I imagine he was talking about quite a lot of the music that I absolutely loved at the time, encouraged him to start playing again and making the sort of music he wanted to hear. This time it was just him and his electric guitar under the name Spy vs. Spy, a nod to a strip in Mad Magazine. Billy's demo tape caught the attention of A&R man and sometime Pink Floyd manager Peter Jenner, who, fun fact, went to the same posh school that I did, Westminster, although a bit before I was there. And in July 1983, Billy's first album, Life's a Riot, with Spy vs. Spy, was released. That record featured music that blended elements of folk and punk in the service of songs like New England later a hit for Kirsty McCall, which were less polemical and more personal. But his next album, Brewing Up with Billy Bragg, in 1984, reflected the anger he felt at the Thatcher government's handling of the miners' strike that year. And 1985's Between the Wars EP cemented his profile as an explicitly political songwriter. Oh, I just stung my calves on some very bitey nettles. Spicy. In the mid-1990s, Billy was given the chance to engage with his love of traditional American music when Nora Guthrie, the daughter of folk legend Woody Guthrie, asked Billy to set some of her father's unrecorded lyrics to music. And with the help of the band Wilco, Billy recorded the album Mermaid Avenue, released in 1998, featuring original music by Wilco and Billy, with lyrics written years before by Woody Guthrie. The record, which includes the Wilco slash Bragg favourite California Stars, was a hit, and two more volumes of Bragg Wilco Guthrie songs followed. In addition to music and Billy's ongoing political activism, obviously usually in support of the Labour Party, occasional boosting of the Greens, smattering of sympathy for the Liberal Democrats, but so far nothing solid for the Tories, Billy has written several books, including The Progressive Patriot, published in 2006, in which Billy considers what it means to be English, his book on Skiffle, Roots, Radicals and Rockers, How Skiffle Changed the World, which came out in 2017, and in 2019, The Three Dimensions of Freedom, about how freedom of speech has become a battleground in an era of growing authoritarianism. In November this year, 2023, that's the future as I speak, Billy is playing music across the UK and Ireland in support of The Roaring Forty, a career retrospective collection released later this month, October. And you can find tour dates on Billy's website. There's a link in the description of today's podcast. My conversation with Billy took place in London at the beginning of August this year and he arrived before me. I was late that day. Bad organisation as per. But I found Billy in a buoyant mood watching the Women's World Cup game against China. 
on an iPad. We had a good chat about things including manners in social media, the challenge of being a progressive patriot, what posters Billy had on his wall as a boy, couple that you might not expect, why Neil Young and Stanley Kubrick made their way to barking, the fondness that Billy and I share for a certain brand of pudding, how Billy's approach to politics has evolved over the years, the fascinating place that Skiffle holds in music history. That's a great little overview of that from Billy at one point. That's like a kind of feverish conspiracy theory, but real. And Billy tells me about close encounters with Bob Dylan and David Bowie. But I began by reminding the Barking Bard of the only other time that we met. A long, a long a time ago, when Billy was keeping some surprising company. Back at the end with a small waffle slice, but right now, with Billy Bragg. Here we go. remember the first time that we met maybe the only other time that we have met was it in was it when you were in brixton prison i brought some guitars in <laughs> that was it um but before then it was glastonbury oh mate what happens in glastonbury stays at glastonbury 2000 do you know how many glastonbury's i've done since 2000 yeah i know you've you know I mean, probably 23 say, i would imagine yeah, well if there had been 23 yeah but there haven't they've only been 18 and i have done all of them okay good so yeah so if, uh, forgive me if I if I don't, no, that's okay. Me and Joe Cornish were there, and we were doing coverage for BBC Three, and you were there with your pal Boris Johnson. Oh, I do remember that. That's one <laughs> thing I can't forget. Unfortunately, what was the deal? They someone had hooked you up to do some kind of no. wacky opposites attract no. kind of TV show. Yeah, let me let's just, just 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 rewind a bit. Now, firstly, I want to assure your listeners at the time he was merely the editor of the Spectator. He was a harmless buffoon, harmless from, buffoon who had appeared on Have I Got News for yeah. You and got himself some notoriety exactly. off the back. Exactly. In many ways, Adam, he was in the same constellation as you. Quite right. You're very so, you know, you Even and Joe. Although he was, kinda. we were more harmless, I would venture. Just because you didn't go to Eton. But anyway, let me just, they, he was making a program for Radio 4 called Why People Hate the Tories. So obviously I was a prime interviewee for that. And in the course of that conversation, I said to him, you know, it's arguing that you don't live in the real world, you people. I said, you've probably never even been to Glastonbury, have you? I said, no, no, I haven't, no. I said, well, how, how old are you? You've not been to Glastonbury. Anyway, the producer said to me, oh, you know what? We should get him down to Glastonbury. So I thought that was a jolly jape as well. I thought it would be a laugh. Yeah. So the next Glastow, they got him down there, and it began awfully. He forgot to get off the train at Castle Kerry. That was the start of it all. There is a video on YouTube. Unfortunately. I think there's a couple of videos. There's one that I will post a link to in the description of today's episode where you can see me and Joe interviewing you and then it cuts to some footage of you and Boris meeting at Castle Carey and then wandering around a little bit. And then you play a song for me and Joe. You played 
um, some Lewis Carroll lyrics. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's why the snark. We went to the poetry tent. Right. And uh, I sort of blagged us a, a you know, five-minute spot. I did I, – I can sing the Jabberwocky. Uh-huh. Uh, the whole so, thing. Yeah, like a, it's like a country song. Twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave. Like Johnny Cash, you know, like that. It's easy. And he did some of the Iliad in the original Demotic Greek, which just sounded like a man growling. It was most off-putting. <laughs> but at the time, because he, because he had his kind of, uh, I've got news for you, fame, yeah. people were like pleased to see him. I mean, imagine if he went there now. You know, they'd, be, they'd put him in the Wicker Man, wouldn't they? Well, would they? This is the question about Boris Johnson. Because, I mean, you felt the warmth of his personal charm, right? I did. And because me and Joe, Joe dressed up as Boris Johnson, I forgot. He had a silly sort of blonde wig on and we made some big goofy teeth out of cardboard. And so that's how we started our conversation with you, with of Joe pretending to be Boris Johnson. And then I think we were anxious not to be too buffoonish ourselves. So we, we kind of pivoted to asking slightly more serious questions about what are you doing with Boris Johnson? Yeah. Is he is Joe's grotesque parody of Boris Johnson accurate or not? And you were saying, no, it's not really. Don't underestimate the guy, yeah. which was the thrust of what you were saying. Scary, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the you things were... we do at Glastonbury, see, this is the thing. This is why what happens at Glastonbury should stay at Glastonbury. You know, we've all done things at Glastonbury we've been somewhat ashamed of, even if it's just pooing in the hedge. Not that I've done that, I should add. But, you know, the stain on my Glastonbury experience is yeah. I, I took but, Boris round. But you did have an insight and into... some bastard filmed it. <laughs> Several bastards. That's right. You had an insight into his most powerful weapon. I did. And the thing that has enabled him to do what he's done, really, which is to come across as a kind of likeable guy. And, but there, uh, was, there was something that did happen that was more telling about him, really, and who he is. All the time we were there... We were under real pressure to get him back on the train for a certain time, and he was constantly giving me the watch, saying, I've got to be on that train, mm-hmm. whatever happens. And I'd organise there to be a jeep come and get him, to get him to the castle, all the way through, all the way through. He's like, you've got to get me, I've got to get back, blah, blah, blah. As it happened, where we were when we finished filming, I said to him, you know, Boris, it will be quicker if we walk back from here. You know, it'd be about a 10-minute walk. We'd probably have to wait 10 minutes for the Jeep to get here. If that, it might be 15. Why don't we just walk? So he's like, yeah, fine. We got think we went to Stone Circle. We swept down through the Stone Circle. We were coming down through the, I think we were coming down through the markets, and there was a guy, a Greenpeace guy or something like that, one of those guys handing out flyers hmm. who Boris went to school with, went to Eton with. And he, he was like, oh, wow, mate. And he's talking. I'm standing there talking, and I'm talking, and I'm talking, and I'm like, Boris, mate. Tapping the watch, yeah. Tapping the watch, yeah, it's time, mate. He's like, yeah, 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 I'll be a minute. And I'm like, look, Boris, I'm really sorry, but I've got to go now because I've got something to do, so I'm going to have to leave you here on your own to make your own way back to the pyramid stage. And he's like, yeah. And that says more about him that he's only in the minute. Whatever responsibility he has to anybody else outside of that minute is overridden by the minute that he's in. Mm -hmm. And that is a kind of annoying trait in a mate, but it's a really dangerous trait in a prime minister. And I think having... You know, seeing what he went through with Partygate, clearly when he was in that moment, that's what all he was thinking. He wasn't thinking about any of the ramifications about what it means to anybody else. Because he certainly wasn't thinking about his PA who was pestering me all the time to get him on the train when he was talking to his mate. And that, to me, was the thing most strongly that at the time I thought that was a bit out of order. You know, you're supposed to be somewhere else at a certain time. You do your best to get there. I felt irresponsible leaving him there, frankly. He didn't feel irresponsible at all. He's not a big-picture thinker. He's not very accountable. And I think accountability is one of the things that are starting to seep away from our, our discourse, our political life, uh, you know, Trump, 
Boris, people breaking the rules and not caring what the consequences are. Mm-hmm. I find that really, really troubling, you know, and that was in, that was in a microcosm. That's what he kind of did to whoever it was that he was supposed to be with at that particular time. Mm-hmm. I saw you, I actually didn't see the tweet because I am no longer on Twitter, but I read about you retweeting a um, talk that Graham Norton had done yeah. at the Cheltenham Literary Festival That's this true. year, 2023. Yeah. And Graham was talking about reframing cancel culture as accountability culture yeah. and, you know, just taking the emphasis off yeah. the whole cancellation I'm, thing. I'm big on, I'm big on that. I, yeah, you know, yeah. I think cancel culture is a form of accountability. You know, there has to be a balance, Adam. There has to be a right. balance between free speech and accountability. You know, free speech, express your opinion. But if you can't express your opinion without being abusive, then that's when accountability comes in. So it needs to be a balance. You can have too much accountability. You know, revenge is too much accountability. Mm-hmm. And the thing it pivots on is equality. Equality in the middle so that you get a balance. And it's treating the person you're talking to with mutual respect. Then you have an opportunity then to, to disagree with each other without it all falling apart. And I think there's not enough of that, especially not on Twitter, but in, throughout our, our social discourse. And it's a real problem going forward, I think, because it, it's, you know, it, it keeps people, you know, particularly women, women put up with a huge amount of abuse online for nothing more than expressing an opinion. It's partic- and it's just not acceptable. Mm. And another talk that happened this year, which you were part of, was at the Light Gets In Music and Philosophy Festival. And the talk was called Manners Maketh the Man. Yes. And what was your position then? So it was it was presumably that we need more of those kinds of manners. Yeah. More respect, I think, a little bit more responsibility. Uh, and But really, I think the real problem is accountability, because I think responsibility and accountability are two different things. We say, you know, I take responsibility for that. And by saying that, you're articulating that it's you that's got to change your views, right? Yeah. But when you say you hold someone to account, the implication is there's a another person involved saying this is not acceptable you're you know in that sense so i think accountability is more important because if if it's always you taking responsibility you end up in the boris johnson situation mm-hmm. where you can mess around with it and you can get away with a you know a kind of like a sheepish grin and a fluff of your hair and you can get away with it whereas if it's accountability that is the red line then there's always someone to say i'm sorry that's not acceptable and i think we we just need a little bit more of that in our discourse in our political life just to balance things back up again so that we get back onto a, a playing field that's kind of based on in fact based in you know a broadly accepted truth because mm-hmm. truth is obviously you know it's all to do with perspective but trying to get in an area where we agree with each other that's what we're talking about or if not agree at least be able to talk about it with, well, that's what I, mean. I don't mean agree yeah. on the issue i mean agree on yeah. the framework Right. One of the things about socialism in the old days when things were ideological is it gave you a framework to discuss things. You know, we live in a post-ideological world now. Whether that's better or worse, I don't really know. But at least it gave you a framework to have a discussion around. If you don't have some parameters, if you don't have, you know, um, liberty, equality, accountability as the framework, three-dimensional space in which to have a discussion, then you're all over the place, aren't you? You know, if you think that the definition of freedom is being able to say whatever you want to say to whoever you want to say it, whenever you want to say it, and no comeback, that's not really freedom, is it? That's just Trump's Twitter feed, and we all know where that leads to. So, consequently, it, things have to, be, have to be balanced up with a bit of accountability. Mm. How do you think we got to that point? I mean, do you think that Really, the internet and particularly social media just blew it all up, or, or were we heading that way anyway? I think every time there's a new um, a new medium, people 
have to find out where the, where the parameters of that is. You know, when newspapers came in and there were newspapers everywhere, you know, people were getting libeled. You know, they had to bring in libel laws. They had to bring in limits to freedom. You know, one of, one of the great things about liberty is it doesn't work for everybody unless there are hard, fast rules. If you don't have any rules whatsoever, then you're really in trouble. And if you're a free speech absolutist, mm-hmm. then whoever's got the loudest voice and the most money and is called Elon Musk... It's going to dominate the, the discussion, you know. Whereas if, if we really want to have a discussion, then, then there has to be a, a space where we can speak without being shouted down. And it's hard to do that online, you know. I mean, you talk about that uh, Graham Norton. Yeah. Yeah. I retweeted that. What he also said in there is that perhaps if you want to learn about trans rights, it might be better to listen to the parents of trans kids and trans kids rather than author of a book about wizards or words to that effect, mm-hmm. which I retweeted that. Uh, as well, because I actually happen to agree with that. And J.K. Rowling, the the wizard uh, writer, came back and accused me and Norton of of being in favour of rape and death threats, which I'm absolutely the opposite of that. I mean, you know, nobody, nobody, definitely not J.K. Rowling, definitely not. As a woman, you know, just as a woman, she should not have to face that kind of stuff online. And I would never, ever endorse that. But that's what she accused me of. And it's, it's that escalation. Rather than accept and reasonable say, well, you know, she could come back and say, well, it's not just about trans kids. It's also about, you know, young cis girls. And that, you know, she could have engaged in that way. She went straight in and, you know, didn't play the ball, played the player. Yeah. And it's that I mean, attitude. she's been forced into an impossible position yeah. now. She, she's yeah. kind of dealing with a kind of mania yeah. that has been yeah. – uh, yeah. that she's and it shouldn't, no, nobody, should, nobody should have to face the kind of abuse that she faces. Yeah. It's totally, totally unacceptable. By the same token, you do look at some of the things she says and you just think, what are you, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're so you have to, I mean, better. I really, you know, we're all, we're all capable of doing it. You yeah. know, firing something off that you think is absolutely fair and someone else has a different perspective on it and you actually realise you've inadvertently offended them. Mm-hmm. Now, if I do that, I do my best to respond and apologise. Mm-hmm. That's not my intent. I didn't really mean to, you know, that's not what I was getting at. And, and if people keep coming back at me, I just keep apologising. There's not much else I can do. But if, if I see someone make, a, a, you know, a racist statement or something, and rather than apologising or trying to correct it, they double down, then I think you have to think to yourself, well, hang on a minute, you know, there is something wrong. You know, if someone apologises and puts their hands up and says, look, you know, I mean, on my Twitter feed it says, you know, beware all you, you enter here, you know, on, on Twitter. That it's always going to be that... Perception trumps intention. Because when I when I have people talking about cancel culture and say, you know, you're not allowed to say these things anymore, mm-hmm. it's such tosh. Of course you're allowed to say it. You have to think about it. You have to think about these things. And as someone who's been writing for a long time about English identity, that's a dynamite thing. That's a really – you mess around with that and it will blow up in your face. Yes. Particularly if you've got left-wing followers like I have. So you've got to be really, really careful – how you're articulating it, how you're putting out those ideas. You know, because I'm trying to put them out there. I believed in the, around the turn of the century that the failure of the left to talk about identity, particularly the English identity, had left a vacuum which the British National Party had filled and it left them with the ability to be able to kind of dictate who does and who doesn't belong. And we need, you know, we of the more progressive politics, we need to be articulating a sense of Englishness that people can feel that they belong to that. And if we don't, if we just say, I'm not talking about that, you know, I don't want to go there. There's loads of different types of socialism. Anyone on the left recognise that. And there's different types of patriotism. Yeah. People have different reasons why they love the country. And it, it's only when you, you have to adhere to someone's narrow idea of what that is, because I think the traditional 
patriot, the things that they love are in many ways immutable. You know, they're institutions, they're the monarchy, they're the flag. Yes, it's more know. a fear of change and it's... Uh, well, it's just it's a stability thing, isn't it? And, yeah, and yeah. hierarchy. I think hierarchy plays a big thing in it as well. Right. Whereas for myself, it's values. You know, the values that we're supposed to uphold, which are the ones that they ask people who are getting British citizenship to understand, which is, you know, the rule of law. Nobody is above the law. Uh, tolerant society, you know, all these things are positive things, you know, respect for people's freedom, all these positive things. They're the things that I think are, are best about our country. That don't mean they only belong to our country. There's other countries got them as well. But in a, if we're going to try and uphold those values, when we fail to, that's when I get angry. And that's because I'm a patriot, because mm. I love my country. And I, I hate to see it failing to live up to those ideals that I believe that we, you know, we all of us should be trying to, to live up to. Yeah. And yet in a glib way, it's very easy for the internet to kind of recast that as like, oh, it's a certain type of lefty nationalism. Yikes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the whole woke thing, isn't it? Yeah. I think there's a fear um, among some people on the, the, the right of... And I don't wish to put this across in a, in a pejorative way, but I think that they perceive things like empathy as not the sort of thing that a man should express. They're uh-huh. kind of un, unmale things, you know. They, they empathy, compassion, not own the gun, these kind of things. They see them as, if not feminine traits, because I don't think they are feminine traits. I think they're universal traits. But they 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 see them as not the sort of thing that makes what they define as a man. Yeah, I guess a certain type of. Yeah, yeah. Well, these are the guys. These yeah. are the guys who are always banging on about woke. These are the guys who are always trying to to you know because when you look at what it is that is woke in inverted commas, yeah, it's always things that are based in empathy, feeling for other people, compassion for other people. It seems to me with where, where it's put into policy, they're trying to push back the, the progress we've made in individual rights over the last 60 years, you know, if, because I think it's, it's clear to most people that if anti-trans campaigners do manage to make it impossible for uh, transgender people, non-binary people to live their lives, they will then move on to gay marriage, they'll move on to trying to push gays and lesbians back in the closet. And if they win that, they'll move on to abortion rights like they have done in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. They're just moving wherever they can to push back against any kind of idea or expression that is not what they consider to be heteronormative. Uh, so I think- That's the extreme on the right. But then, but then I was thinking of like people on the left who look at you and go, oh, I don't know about this. I, I smell nationalism. Oh, yeah, Yikes. of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They definitely, it definitely is some of that. There are some right. people who still can't can't be dealing with that, won't be doing with that. And that's why I say when you t- talk about it, you have to be very careful the language you use. Mm. You know, you can talk about it. You can address these things. But you have to make sure that what you're talking about is in a way that takes on board the fact that you can both be a nationalist and an internationalist. You know, I totally reject this idea that people are either people from somewhere or people from nowhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm a classic cosmopolitan me. I work all over the world. I, I go everywhere and I'm, I feel a, a citizen of the world. You come and see me play live and at the end of the night I say, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Billy Bragg. I'm from Barking Essex. All right? Because I know where I belong. I know where I'm from. And those two things are not, you know, the, the opposite ends of a scale. You can be both of those things. You know, I spent the entire lockdown putting together a, a huge uh, one of them online photo books about our family history. Because my nephews, 
my brother's oldest boy lives in the house we grew up in now. My mum passed away and uh, he's moved in there. And he was asking me who lived in the house before and a bit of the history. And I thought, oh, I, must, I must put all the old photos in a book for him. And then I thought, well, I could actually write everything I know about the family history in there as well and put it into a narrative and explain to him, you know, like what his granddad did in India in the war and where he, what his great-granddad did in the First World War and, you know, what I know about where they living in Barking and East Ham and why his great-great-grandfather come out of Essex and, you know, whatever I knew about family history. So I sort of put that together and knocked up a few of those for the family. That's great. Yeah. It's all, you could almost, almost say it's my hobby, I suppose, that sort of – I just kind of get into that family history thing. Did your parents talk about their history a lot? Did you know about it when you were a teenager? Well, I did this project. We had um, calligraphy lessons. And I yeah. thought, what well, a family tree would look nice. So I sat down with my, with my dad – and he sent me around to see my great or his aunt, my great aunt. So that would be my grandfather's sister, who's the last of her generation, or the only one of her generation I ever knew. She was born in 1888. And she lived around the corner from our house in a house that was exactly the same as ours, built at the same time, top two down. But she lived in the upstairs, and she still had gaslight, hmm. right? So this is like, this would be 71, 72. So just going to see her was like going to, back into Victorian times. And if you took the photos, what she could remember who was who, and all that stuff. I mean, she died in 73. My dad died in 76. So just before it all disappeared, I managed to make notes, the basics, you know, so I kind of know who's who in the photos. Your dad was a milliner. Is that right? No, he was. No. Well, he was Where did not, I get that? He did make hats. Yeah, he worked for a hat company. Okay. But most of the time I knew him, he was a warehouseman. But when I was growing up, he, he worked... For Amazon. Not quite, no. Uh, where, where I grew up in, in Barking, the yeah. main, everybody worked for Fords or okay. one of the ancillary companies. So, yeah, he worked in a warehouse. That's what he did. Did your mum have a job? Yep. 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 She, uh, she, when I was in my school days, she was in charge of a gang of women who put leaflets through doors. A girl gang? Yeah, they were, yeah. She was, she'd go around and make a chalk mark on the corner where she'd been and off there. So, what kind of leaflets? It wasn't always leaflets. Sometimes it was samples of things. Okay. So um, the leaflets she, were just a standard. She wasn't rabble-rousing. No, 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 no. It was like, you know, uh, five pence off of Daz. Yeah, okay. And things like that. Uh, but sometimes it was physical samples. So uh, one time we had, um, when you know, tuck biscuits. Sure. When they first come out, we had just crackers. boxes and boxes of these crackers. Yeah. We lived on them for a while. They were great. And... Um, T-U-C, I always yep, say. Yep, indeed, T-U-C. I didn't <laughs> think of that. But yeah, she, how you will put that through someone's letterbox, I don't know about crushing it. I don't know. Did you all talk and stuff, and did you have supper together and chat yeah, about the world did, and yeah. politics? Really, no, and... we didn't talk about politics at all. Ah, did you not, right? No. In Barking, the Labour Party get in whatever. I mean, Barking's been, you know, Labour since 1935 when it was invented. It was chopped out of Essex as a constituency, which is not unusual. I mean, where I live in West Dorset, it's been Tory since 1886, so it's not a weird thing. Yeah. But um, everything was Labour where I lived. You know, What kind of things would you chat about, do you remember? Yeah, I would talk to my dad about what he did in India during the war. I talked to, to him about that. I talked to my mum sometimes about... Um, about her Italian ancestors. She, her grandfather come from a place called Minori in Italy. Talked to her about that, her upbringing, these kind of things. And just generally family chit-chat. You know, my nan as well. I had, I had a conversation with her and three of her sisters once in which they, they had a fabulous argument about whether this event we were talking happened in the First World War or the Second World War. And they, she was like, no, 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 that was the First World War. And it was resolved by... Aunt Lil saying, no, that's when Albert come home and he had that big black thing on his shoulder and when it burst, it was full of soot. Don't you remember? And they all went, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah." And I'm sitting there like, this is just gold. This is just gold. 
Wow. Yeah. So those kind of – I've always been into family history, you know. I've always yeah. been looking in boxes upstairs, always looking in photos, trying to work out who's who and all that kind of stuff. So I have a really strong sense of belonging for a cosmopolitan person like myself, which is why, I, I you know, I feel totally at ease either way, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, my brother, as I say, my nephew lives in the house we grew up in. I was just – my brother's just been down with his – his grandkids come down for it because we live in Dorset now by the ocean. And the, the little one's got my old box room, poor little thing. I said to her, is the wall, is the wall still damp? <laughs> Where you used to have your Olivia Newton-John posters. Indeed, my Olivia Newton-John posters I had. I also had the Marx Brothers. I had the Easy Rider poster. Because yeah. I had a Saturday job in a uh, hardware store, which had a record shop in the basement. So I'd go in and spend all my money down in the record shop. I'd get my lunch hour in the booth, sitting in the booth with the record on. And they sold posters as well, did of they? Of course they did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, record shops always sold posters. That's right. So I had Olivia Newton-John. I had uh, Simon and Garfunkel. Posters were such a big deal They were a in big deal, days. weren't they? Yeah, they were really big deal. Me I had and Bridget... Joe used to spend like whole afternoons in the West End in all yeah. the super nerdy film poster Huge shops. Posters. Yeah, yeah. And also I would go out the back of the record shop on Saturday and the back they had like a skip there. And in the skip, they had the promotional material Ooh, for the records. So yeah, booty. so yeah, so I would go in there, and I got a, I got a triangle thing uh, that sort of hung and spun in the shop. Uh, that had on one side Simon and Garfunk, on the other side Bob Dylan. Which if I had Smokey Robinson in there, that would be my entire life. <laughs> I had that hanging in my bedroom for a while, and I had a great Sticky Fingers kind of fold out thing. That eventually, I Rolling like, Stones. I, yeah, yeah, I, I framed it and gave it to Wiggy for his. Or something. Wiggy's your best mate. He is. And do you still see Wiggy? I do. I still see him. He's I around. Do, Good. Yeah, yeah, he is around. Yeah. In fact, the last thing we did before the lockdown was Wiggy's 60th birthday. Yeah. We got together, Riff Raff, the old band, and we'd done a gig at Dingwalls. This is your first band? Yeah. That you formed with Wiggy, who taught you how to play he the did. guitar? He did. He did. Oh, this is terrible. Adam, oh, God. Oh. 50 Time. years ago next year. Oh, my God. Ah, oh, you don't look Christ. a day over 30. Yeah, he did. He taught me. I wanted to play guitar so much and I couldn't master it. And then Wiggy, who's two years younger than me, he, he got hold of it. He got electric guitar. I could hear him playing electric guitar through the wall. So I'm like, I've got to have a word with him. Rod so Stewart songbook. That's what he got me. He got me to buy the Rod Stewart songbook. I said, look, we like these songs. We love these songs. Let's learn these songs rather than learn Do, Re, Mi and all that. What's the first one you tackled, do you remember? Oh, probably something like Ooh La La, pretty simple, isn't it? Two, three chords, you know, those kind of songs. Nothing. And also the Rod Stewart songbook, because it was based on albums, had Dylan songs in it as well, because he always covered a Dylan song. So I was kind of, that's what I was interested in. And then I got a Dylan songbook, and Dylan songs, it turned out, were all G. Um, F and uh, C, F and G, seven. Difficult strumming, though, with Dylan, isn't it? Like, no, really straightforward. Is it? Dong, 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 oh, I guess like that. But then people, sometimes wherever. his phrasing is weird, though, isn't it? My phrasing's weird, Adam. Okay. Sometimes. Shouldn't worry about it. Yeah. Basically, what happened with me was I didn't have an older sibling to turn me on to music, so I had to rely on my mate's elder sisters. My parents didn't buy a record player. We never had a record player, but they bought me a reel-to-reel tape machine. Hmm. Big old thing it was. And I taped a lot of stuff off the radio, obviously. But um, What, just with holding yeah, the mic in yeah, front of it? Sometimes with my mum saying things on it or, you know, oh, someone wow. ringing the doorbell or the phone going. Have you still got any of those tapes? I have. I've got them all, sadly, yeah. Oh, I dread man. to think what they sound like. But more importantly than that, I had a mate round the corner, Paul Charman, whose sister Leslie had impeccable taste. And she had Motown Chartbusters Volume 3, 4 and 5. Mm-hmm. I went round and recorded those. And then he came round one day with... 
Bridge Over Troubled Water and he knew I was obsessed with Simon and Garfunkel and he had Bridge Over Troubled Water and he just came around with it like that and went like that with it on the door and I was like, oh my God. He said, yeah, come around tomorrow. We'll go down. The, he had a, like a lean-to at the bottom of his garden and we went down there and uh, and recorded through the air as well, you know, the mic by the by the dance set. Yeah. Yeah. So you can – I always thought it was on the record, but actually it's me and Paul Charman talking in very high, squeaky voices quietly in the background. It sounds like birds. <laughs> and it was one of those things you could flip over, you know. And then a few other friends, uh, elder sisters, had other Simon and Garfunkel records. So I was in pig heaven with those, just listening to those. And that would be good to hear that version of Bridge Over Troubled Water yeah. with, like, extra production layer. That's the right. Young yeah. Billy Brand. Yeah. A uh, remastered that? version. Yeah, yeah. With the birds as well, the bottom of Paul Charman's garden, because it backed onto Barking Park, like all our houses backed onto the park, which was a, a boon when we were growing up. So, yeah, so that was kind of my introduction to writing. So I was writing songs then before I learned how to play the guitar. Yeah. I was just obsessed with songwriting. You know, I was one of those kids who wrote poetry at school, like we all did, but I just didn't stop. Everyone, like we everyone all else, did. Yeah, everyone did, didn't they? They had to in English. Uh, but I everyone guess. else stopped. Well, yeah. I didn't stop. I don't know why everyone else stopped. But I didn't. <laughs> Because poetry was always seen as the most cringy thing, wasn't it? Like, uh, you've, well, obviously, it, you've obviously never given a girl a poem. Actually, I have. I have. I do like poems. I gave my wife poems, and she, but they were sort of silly poems. They were tongue in cheek. Oh, mate, don't oh, be doing tongue in cheek with poetry. Mate, I've got, done a whole life of tongue in cheek, Billy. I'm trying to get out of it at this late stage. Too much stage. tongue, not enough cheek, I would say. I want to clarify, though, the sentiment was not tongue in cheek. Okay. It was just there were they were humorous and okay. you know they were yeah. like they yeah. weren't totally heart on sleeve. No, no, I've written poems like that as well. Yeah, to my in the, in the old days when we used to communicate over vast distances by fax. Yeah. I would on the flight I would write her a poem or something like that and fax it to. Of course, we just all just disappeared now. Cause I know. Well, part. just talking about all this stuff to someone aged, you know, the, the age of my son, who the, my eldest son is twenty. None of that computes at all. No. The idea of sticking a microphone in front of some speakers to record a song and that was going to be the only it way you... Be. I also explained to him about dial-a-disc as well. <laughs> when you could, when you had a phone number, was it 176, 175? You could yeah, ring yeah. up and hear a particular song. That's right. It's mad and we did it. Why did we do that? What was, well, that was so I told sad, someone about that the other day and maybe it was even my wife. My wife and she, she just said, "What? Yeah, that didn't exist. Did. She'd never <laughs> done that." She was like, "Why would you do that?" I was like, "To hear the song." And she's like, "And so, how do you hear the song?" I was like, "Down the phone." Yeah. She's <laughs> like, "What? Just down the earpiece of the phone?" I was like, "Yeah." Yeah. yeah. I remember listening to um, "Souvenir" by Orchestral oh, Maneuvers in the Dark. Is. I bought that single. Yeah, that's a great single. It's a peach, isn't oh, it? Oh, what a riff! And even down the. Um, phone i was like yeah, yeah. this is doing yeah. this is doing the because job. you couldn't just call stuff up like you do now mm. you couldn't just put it in there and up it comes you yeah know? yeah i guess lots of producers do this now is to have a little shitty speaker yeah in the middle of the mixing desk yeah and then famously phil Spector would do that yeah yeah so he had just a tiny crap speaker yeah so he'd be able to hear the mix through that and, well, and this is what i said to jack jack unless you've listened to something like uh you know tumbling dice or um, Jumping Jack Flash through a car radio speaker. Mm -hmm. You've not really heard what it was mixed for. I know even then you've got the big speakers in the door now. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's not what they were mixed to do. You need to get a dance set or something and play it on a dance set. And had that, that was the great thing about um, the reel-to-reel -reel tape machine. Mm -hmm. That I, I listened back to it about 10 years later. I probably haven't listened to it, as I say, for 40 years. But 10 years later, I fixed it all up. It probably doesn't run now. The heads have probably died. But... 
it was the Motown stuff was the beats. It was so trebly, yeah. But it was just straight in, you know. It got right into my head. It was just all. I just loved that sound. Wow, that was. If you listen back, that would be trippy. Yeah, that would be like a time machine. Really weird, because you know who else is on it? Aunt Anna's voice is on there. From was born in eighteen eighty eight. She speaks to me. Yeah, I haven't heard that for a long time. My dad's voice is on there. I haven't heard that for a long time either. So that is weird, isn't it? To go back into that. that What would that do to you? Are you very? Are you? How do you deal with? things like that i get very sentimental well, yeah i am a very sentimental person i am a sentimental person but yeah it would be nice to to hear that again you know there's not many there's no film clips of aunt anna there's precious few film clips of my dad so yeah i think you know anything like that i'm always up for a little bit of that yeah you don't mind going back that's not too painful your dad died when you were young yeah he did i was 18 he had cancer for 18 months yeah he died well it was <laughs> You know, it was terrible, absolutely terrible. And it kind of shattered our little family unit. But within about three or four months of my dad dying, punk come along. Like I was standing at a bus stop. I got on the bus and it was a different life. I was a different person. I literally was a different person. I was, <laughs> I, before I was Stephen Bragg, that Wally I went to school with, you know, never had a proper haircut and couldn't afford to get a Ben Sherman. And then I got on the punk bus and all of a sudden I was Billy Bragg. I was writing these songs and fronting this band. A completely different person. So the remorse I felt for it all, I just boxed that away. And I didn't really, I was in a strange situation where I didn't talk to anybody about it until in the early 90s, I accidentally wrote a song about it. I was writing a song about something else. And this line come through, I closed my eyes and when I looked, your name was in the memorial book. And I thought, oh, that's a bit weird. Because where my dad's ashes are cremated, there's a memorial book there that's open on the day that he died and you can go and see his name. And we always used to, always go with my mum. I would always go on that day. I'd go and see him. We'd go over there. And that line come through and I was like, oh, if I go down this one, if I go down this line, I'm going to have to go, not only am I going to have to go back and revisit all that, I'm going to have to be able to talk to absolute strangers about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you talk on, on stage, right? Well, not just that. You've sung the song and someone comes backstage. You've sung a song about how you felt about your old man dying. Yeah. It's one of those songs that I'm very, you know, I don't do an intro. I don't intro it. I just play it. I just play it. It's called Tank Park Salute, by the way. And um, it was my mum's favourite song out of all of my songs. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure she even knew many of them, but she would always come and see me. And if I was doing a show and she'd come along, she'd seen me before, she'd you're going to play that song, aren't you? And I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to play this song. And then my nephews would be like, why do you always play that song that makes Nan cry? Ask your Nan, your Nan will tell you. Wow, that's heavy. It is. It's good, though. It's good to be able yeah, yeah. To, to have a song that allows you to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's heavy you in, know, a, in a lovely way in a, that your mum was able of, yeah, to appreciate it. Because I think my, my sense about what business I'm in is I'm in the business of empathy. Empathy is the currency of music. You know, whether you're listening to the, what the person's singing about and thinking about yourself being in that situation and empathising with someone in that situation, whether it's political or love song or whatever, you know. Or the other way around, the person who wrote the song has somehow touched on something very close to you and you're drawing empathy from the song in the sense that you feel you're not alone because that's the, that's the power that music has, the power to make you feel that you're not alone and you're not the only person who's ever felt this way. And that's, that, again, is another great power because it's not the power to change the world. It's a strange job to be in a political songwriter where people think that your music changes the world. And I tell audiences that it don't. And they like, you get, it's an audible sigh when I say it. It's like, you know, 
Don't, it's like telling them there's no Santa Claus. But it's the truth. If, if anybody, you know, generally, I'm the only person who's been trying to change the world through music for 40 years in the room when I say it. So if anyone's got the authority to be able to say it and the perspective, it's me. But having said that, what I can tell them is that the power that music has is the power to make you believe the world can be changed. And that is itself a, a great, great power. It brings people together. It allows them to express their their emotions about something, their solidarity about something. And you're in a room, you know, you go and see your favourite band and or your favourite artist and they're singing a song that you've invested so much into. And then, you know, you're singing along with them and they're singing it and a thousand other people are singing it. You've, you've, whatever it is that you feel is accepted. Whatever mm. it is that you've put into that song feels like you're, you're part of it. It's the reason why they sing at football. It's the reason why they sing in church. They're looking for a communal experience that makes them feel that they're not alone. You know, and that's why I was never worried during the lockdown that we would all come back to be able to play gigs again mm-hmm. because people need that. People really need that experience in the dark together. How was your lockdown? Well, it's the thing, you see, the, the, the problem for me was I did a load of things that I'm not sure if it was the lockdown, if it was being in my 60s. It could have just been I'd have done these things anyway in my 60s. Right, okay. So I, I happened to be that weird age. But, yeah, I got a lot of stuff done. I emptied out the basement, uh, moved house, I uh, did the family history thing. And eventually, when I run out of things to do, and I was starting to think, oh, I'm starting to wonder if this is ever going to come out, I yeah. suddenly realised, oh, yeah, make an album, write some songs and make an album. So I did. I made an album while we were out. So, yeah, I kind of uh, respect it. it. was a really, really tough time for a lot of people. But in my situation, I mean, I lived on a beach, mm-hmm. which no one could come to, apart from those of us who lived in the village. So... Perfectly positioned. I can't, I can't complain. Yeah. I can't complain, mate. We're halfway through the podcast. I think it's going really great. The conversation's flowing like it would between a geezer and his mate. All right, mate. Hello, geezer. I'm pleased to see you. Ooh, there's so much chemistry. It's like a science lab of talking. I'm interested in what you said. Thank you. There's fun chat and there's deep chat. It's like Chris Evans is meeting Stephen Hawking. I was at school with a guy called Ben Walden. He was one of our best mates, our little gang, and he loved your stuff. And we, the rest of us, were kind of into very different music. We were into what I would, you know, there's two kinds of music fan, I think, at that age. Either you're a sort of fantasy music guy or you're a reality music guy, right? And I was more a kind of escapist type person and that was reflected in the sort of movies that I liked yeah, yeah. as well you know and I liked David Bowie but I liked Thomas Dolby and the Thompson Twins and Synthesizers and Gary Newman yeah, yeah. and Echo and the Bunnymen great band and in 1984 when I was listening to them you were on tour with them I was I'll, I'll return to Ben Walden in a second but what was that like briefly well I'll tell you what that was like it was my first time in America yeah so it was not just being out with the Bunnymen, who were a great bunch, particularly Will Sargent. Yeah. Really lovely guy, really bonded with Will. Smashing guy. But sitting on the back of their tour bus watching America go by, and we did go north, south, east, west, and we went everywhere on that tour, on that tour bus. And you took Wiggy with you. Wiggy, well, this is what happened, yeah, yeah. I got this gig, literally, probably, I mean, I know, because I sp- subsequently spoke to him, it was Bill Drummond who right. wanted me. on the Not the Bunnymen so much, but Bill Drummond 
because he really thought what I was doing was interesting and it would be interesting to throw me in front of an American audience. So this is Bill Drummond, known to a lot of people from the KLF, KLF who but was also then the manager, manager of the Bunny Man. Yeah, a real mover and shaker. Lovely guy. He thought it would be good to put me out there in front of him. And I was really cheap. It was just me on the back of the bus. You know, they paid my hotels. They paid me a wage. They gave me PDs. And they said I could bring a roadie. So I'm like, okay, this could be the only time I ever tour America, ever. This could all just go tomorrow. I was still in that phase, you know. So You released one album at that point, yep, or two? one. This is uh, uh, summer, August 1984. This is still in my first flush. So yeah. you never know. It's just the ground's going to disappear in front of you. I was still buying two copies of the enemy if I was in it in case I lost the first one. It was that kind of yeah. time. Um, I rang up Wiggs and said, look, Wiggs, how many times did we sit in my mum's back room and dream about touring America? This is it. You've got to come with me, mate. You've got to come. It's going to be you know, me writing to you and telling you about it. Come on. We've got to do this, mate. So we did. So Wiggy come with me. And it was just the whole thing was super enhancing because I had someone to laugh about it with. I had someone to, you know, walk around and say, a fire hydrant. Oh, my God. You know, the whole thing was that. And we kind of had a sort of spiritual moment where we sort of somehow connected with our teenage selves sitting in back rooms embarking, dreaming about this. It was kind of like a, a really sort of, wow, you know, we've actually done this moment. It wouldn't have been anything like... The, the amazing experience it was if Wiggy hadn't have been there. To, yeah. I did a thing a couple of weeks ago um, in Barking Town Hall. They were unveiling a plaque to Neil Young because he recorded one of the tracks from the Harvest album in Barking Assembly Halls in 1972 while I was in double physics, yeah. A Man Needs a Maid was really? recorded was, yeah, was recorded with the London Symphony Orchestra embarking assembly rooms which is now the um broadway theater embarking yeah good fact with the london symphony orchestra and jack nietzsche right and glyn johns and the rolling stones mobile was parked outside for a week wow i didn't know that isn't that incredible yeah yeah i can imagine neil young walking around barking going to pesky's fish bar <laughs> and getting 74 <laughs> cod and chips for the london symphony orchestra it just blew my mind although i suppose you would probably gone to wimpy's at the railway station to get some similar something like a hamburger or something it just does my head in. I mean, I, Neil Young filmed the making of Harvest. There's a movie that only got released just recently, and it's all in there. And, uh, and they showed, we went, we, Wiggy and uh, Bob, who was the drummer, uh, we went to watch the film, and uh, the whole process was just pretty mad. I mean, what else was recorded there? Apparently had the best acoustics for orchestras in London. Yeah. i tell you what else was recorded there. The orchestrated Tubular Bells was recorded there. Oh, really? But even weirder... The soundtrack for Psycho was recorded there. Wow. Barking Town Hall. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, that is that, that's really amazing, isn't it? But yeah, Harvest, Neil Young, A Man Needs a Maid, that whole orchestra. Dun, 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 dun. That was recorded in, uh, in Barking. I want to see that film. That sounds great. The yeah, Harvest. I can't remember what it's called now. You know, Full Metal Jacket was filmed in Barking as well, didn't you? It was okay. the old Beckton Gasworks, which weirdly is where my great grandfather came from Essex to work in yeah. the 18. 60s and they uh, they got, were knocking it down so it was kind of like they'd, they'd blown up a few of the buildings and, and one of the buildings had kind of they'd blown some of the legs away and it tilted that way and so the battle scenes all the battle scenes yeah the sort of second where, half of the movie yeah where the sniper uh, shoots a uh, cowboy yeah all that was filmed there in those places and I had a friend who was a and to uh, be fair it does look like barking <laughs> Don't you think? The palm trees. There's a couple of palm trees. You can trees see, stuck if you look there. closer, you can see in one scene, you can see Shooter's Hill in the background, <laughs> just on the other side of the river. But um, that was pretty weird, wasn't it? The idea of Kubrick. Yeah. Right at the end of the Dockless Light Railway. 
It yeah. is so weird, the thought of him being in the UK for all that time yeah. and being exposed to British culture yeah. on a daily basis. It is weird, isn't it? He used to apparently come down to West Bay. They had a family place, which is near where I live, uh-huh. the next village along from where I live in Dorset. The family had a place at West Bay. He'd be on, he, might, he might have been on the beach there when we first went down there, just sitting there, kubicking away, you know. Right. I used to arm wrestle with my boy when he was younger. Over He went to film school for a while, my boy. Oh, yeah. And he was a big Spielberg fan. And yeah. I'm like, Kubrick. Kubrick Come every on, time. Kubrick. So after now, now, now he's seen Paths of Glory. Now he's seen, you know. We watched that the other day. What a great film. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah, what an amazing film. What a film. And except our experience of watching Paths of Glory was somewhat affected by my wife's insistence at a certain point. I mean, it's complicated because we had friends, family friends staying with us and they'd been having a hard time. My wife said, let's all watch a movie together. I said, what about Paths of Glory? <laughs> oh, heck, mate. I mean, I gave them some options. Yeah. I gave them some light comedy options plus Paths of Glory. And they said, yeah, let's do Paths of You know, I said, it's pretty fucking good, yeah, Paths yeah. of Glory. They're like, fine, let's watch that. So we watched that. But then, you know, this is for, for anyone who hasn't seen it, one of the most intense, powerful yeah. Yeah. films ever made about war in general and the madness thereof. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway... My wife was just feeling how intense it was and I think didn't like the idea of the friends that we had watching feeling uncomfortable or something. And so at a like at the absolute most tense part, firing squad scene. Yeah, the firing squad scene, yeah, yeah. She goes, Would anyone like a goo pudding or a magnum? <laughs> I've got some in the fridge. Oh, tell you what. And I was thinking I'll have the lime goo pudding. Well, you would have been sorted. I was yeah. just sitting there thinking, is this really happening? And then it took ages for everyone to go, no, I'm fine. Most people didn't want a couple of said, yeah, I'll have a Magnum. It's like, Jesus, <laughs> it's the firing squad scene. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you, those goo puddings are really, they're really the, glass, the glass thing they come in, the glass receptacle. The ramekin. Yeah, the ramekin. Thank you. The ramekin. Wasn't that a movie by... No. Chris the ramekin. Yeah, Chris is is... Absolutely brilliant for catching spiders. I've got several of them around. My, my my dear partner is absolutely terrified of spiders. I often get a shout to come and catch a spider and throw it out. Yeah, yeah. And I find a postcard and, and a goo ramekin. So I constantly have to keep eating goo because they get used for other things. Someone takes them out of the cupboard and puts their trade union badges in it. Or sure, something like, you know. absolutely. Stuffed with trade union badges at our house. Uh, plectrums, Plus, plectrums. Plectrums. Uh, you got uh, your cashew nuts. Piercings. For the smokers, it's a wonderful ashtray. Yeah, it is, it is. Uh, they, it's done. They've, they've served all those they have, purposes at they our have. house. They have. They never get recycled in our house. I don't go into recycling. They go in the cupboard, the ramekins. Yeah, the I ramekins. finally did recycle. A, actually, have, is that true? No. I had a bit ages ago in my um, stand-up thing where I would show I would talk about goo puddings and talk about how the experience of eating a goo pudding, one day it suddenly occurred to me when I was halfway through eating this goo pudding and trying to make it last it suddenly occurred to me like, shit, this is like my life and this is the age I'm at now in middle age I'm halfway through my goo pudding probably more than halfway through (laughs) the goo pudding and now I've really got to make these last few bites last. Yeah. Oh, what about if you own half of it and it's all base? Don't mind. No sweetness. Oh, all but ba- well, no, because there's there's just deliciousness in the base. There is. As you're well. right. You're true. It's true. And then, well, what you do is also you excavate the chocolatey bits under the rim. Oh yeah. As well, that's a whole yeah. other chapter. The rimming of it to yeah. the goo experience. It the is. rimming of the goo. It is. <laughs> it's a nice phrase. I think it's pronounced gnu, isn't it? <laughs> 
<laughs> no, there's another thing I had to stop buying. Because yeah, it was too same sweet. here. Yeah, I but know, but I then again, tell. I did. I was looking. What did I have? Oh, I got a lovely thing from my mum's. It's absolutely hard to describe, and I've no idea what it is. But it's like, it's almost like a bowl that's melted. It's uh, pottery. But oh, okay. It's the 90s. It was on the living room table in our house. Yeah. So when my mum passed away, of all the things, I thought, I'm going to put that up. I have my office and just so I'll put back, you know, someone gives me a badge or a pick or I've got a bit of change in my pocket. It all goes in there. And every now and then I have to empty it out and start again. So that's, I use the spider catch ramekin and I'm like, now I've got nothing to catch spiders in. So I was in uh, Morrison's the other day. I was like, oh, good excuse to get some goo. <laughs> and now, now they're sitting, the partner's looking at me like, goo in the fridge. I'm well, sure you'll yeah, get spiders. You'll get roasted for that somehow. On no, Twitter. I'll catch bigger spiders. Okay. Although I'd, I, Went for one in the bathroom yesterday. I'm really sorry to say this. And I, unfortunately, it was such a small spider and he was right up against the edge. And as I was trying to cup him, I, oh, you can't really squash someone a bit, can you? <laughs> I totally squashed him. But he was, uh, you know, I always try to throw him out rather than squash him. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I accidentally trod on a frog once. Isn't that a euphemism for... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was trod on a duck. Sorry. What's trod on a duck? Oh, that's a fart. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, trod on a frog. It was like it was I was staying at a, a girlfriend's house and I went downstairs for a pee in the garden. I guess someone was using the toilet or I don't know what, but I went out in bare feet. Oh you frogged I in bare feet. On a frog and I felt it crunch. Oh it was awful, awful. I couldn't sleep. That is sad. Oh, I had a dream I was back at school Putting on a play with my friends It was the opening night But I did not know my lines We had spent months and months painting sets And making costumes and posters for the play But we had not rehearsed the play I didn't know what I was supposed to say <clears throat> And yet the rest of the cast Knew all of their words And their moves and the songs in the play And they were shaking their heads As the curtain went up And I was still asking what I should say And suddenly I knew what to do I sat on stage and did a pool now, I mentioned my friend Ben You Walden, did, three days ago. Tantalizingly. Yeah. Yeah, he was such a good mate, and he's one of those people I don't see enough of now in, in later life. But I got in touch with him when I knew I was going to talk to you. And I said, guess who I'm going to talk to? And he's like, oh, man, I'm jealous. He says, please thank Billy for speaking out for a lot of what I felt as a teenager, both emotionally and politically. And, you know, we were at a public school, myself yep. and Ben, and we had been... Uh, sent there by our parents who felt that, you know, they wanted to, to give us every advantage in life, having struggled their way up to the position where they could afford to send their children somewhere like that. Ben's dad was the political interviewer Brian Walden. Oh, wow. Yeah, I remember, remember him on Sunday. Yeah, he was a big yeah. fan of Mrs. Thatcher, wasn't he? Well, he was and he wasn't. Eventually. Like, he, did he start I Labour? He started Labour, yeah. Yeah, and, he went, and, then, and then became a bit, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I can hear his voice in my head now, yeah, yeah. That's right, very, Ron very distinctive that's voice, right. yeah, yeah. And, uh, he was a great interviewer, if I He was. He, I mean, he gave her a hard time yeah, a couple yeah, of yeah. times. Yeah, he did, yeah. But yes, I think he, he drifted over right in his later years. It does happen to some people. I don't know how, but it does happen. <laughs> <laughs> I've, just dripped, I've just drifted to um, 
broad strokes. Whereas I used to talk ideologically now, I find myself talking so much more about you know, empathy mm. and accountability. And, you know, if Woody Guthrie famously had this machine kills fascists yes. on his guitar. I, if I had to paint a slogan on my guitar, it would be deaf to cynicism. I uh-huh. think cynicism is, you know, undermines anyone who wants to make the world a better place. Their own cynicism is their biggest enemy to, you know, that sense that nobody gives a shit about anything and nothing will ever change. You know, that's what Rupert Murdoch wants you to believe. You've got to get over that. So, yeah, so um, I, don't, I haven't drifted off right wing, but I have drifted, you know, I, my... Marxist friends from the 80s I knocked around with you in the minor strike would, you know, would have scoffed if I'd have talked about those kind of things back in the day. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you feel different to the person who um, released Life's a Riot with Spy versus Spy and then well, growing up. I think politically, um, I, I think I'm a bit more pragmatic than I was. I mean, when you're younger, you're, you're, your radicalism is pretty sharp, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you wrote you know, a, a song called Which Side Are You On? I didn't, I adapted that. That was written by a woman named Florence Reese in the 1930s okay. in the United States of America. But yeah, I did, I, you know, and I still do use that song. A- absolutely. I've seen yeah. you singing yeah. that on Picket Lines. Yeah, and oh yeah. Oh, I think it's still a valid song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, But but that's why I, I like you and find you intriguing because, one of the reasons, Yeah. because you are able to have that political passion that's fairly fundamentalist in some ways yep. but still be a big advocate for empathy and for yep. talking to everyone well what is socialism about if it's not about empathy adam mm-hmm. what is socialism other than an organized compassion if it's not then it doesn't look like socialism to me if it's some other you know ideological thing ultimately it's got to be about uh, hasn't socialism got to be about holding capitalism to account hasn't socialism got to be about a society based on equality and liberty so What's changed is the way I articulate my politics. That's changed. I was never someone who understood the Marxist way of talking about things because I didn't, you know, I didn't go to uni, I didn't learn politics. You know, they'd be using the language of Marxism, which at the time I didn't really think was relevant to what I was doing and I don't think it's relevant to what anyone's doing anymore. The language of Marxism doesn't mean shit to anyone anymore. But unfortunately, the things that Marx was writing about haven't been resolved Mm-hmm. So we're in a situation where we have to find other words and other means to articulate these ideas. And as someone with a poetic bent, I've tried in my hardest to come up with other ways of talking about socialism. For instance, I have a song called Upfield, which talks about socialism of the heart, which is compassion rather than socialism of the of the head, which would be ideology. You know, and I was trying to write, you know, I rewrote the lyrics of the Internationale to make them less... Um, ideological and more, uh, you know, have a green dimension to them, you know, to bring them into the the post-ideological period. We didn't, we needed to throw away and throw into the dustbin of history the totalitarianism that came with Soviet communism. But the fundamental ideals of fairness, of liberty and, and equality and accountability, they, we needed to find a new way to articulate them. We can't let them go into the, the you know, throw the baby out with the bark for there. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to make sense of shit. Adam, that's all I'm trying to do. Whether I'm writing a book or whether I'm writing an article for something or writing a song, you know, I've, I've, got, a, I've got a perspective that I'm trying to put across and it's, it's usually because I don't see that reflected somewhere else, you know? Mm-hmm. That's how I ended up writing a book about Skiffle. You know, it was an area that I, something I felt really passionately about and I felt that the books that had been written about it were written by people who were there at the time. Like Chaz McDavid's book is brilliant and it tells you what happened to him while he was at Skiffle, you know, while out there. But... I felt it was, uh, in its context, was much more important than that because it was really the music that introduced the guitar into British pop. 
It was the music of the first generation of British teenagers. It was a music made by African-American roots musicians in another country that wasn't on the radio, yet these kids were able to connect with it and feel, some of them, more in common with an African-American sharecropper in Mississippi than they did with their own dad. You know, that's more than just, oh, I saw Lonnie Donegan and we've done some Lead Belly songs. Yeah. No disrespect <laughs> to Chaz and his book because it's really, really great. But in its context, Skiffle, in its context, is bigger than punk, more important than punk, mm. greater than punk. And punk was everything to me. Punk was like the, you know, year zero, be all and end all. You know, and I still live by those ideas of do it yourself and that. But I always had this sneaking feeling that Skiffle was somehow more important than that. And where's the where's the insight and the, the book that puts it in its proper perspective? So when my publishers asked me if I was interested in writing about something, yeah, that, it seemed to me it would be interesting to... Skiffle time. Yeah. Have you done a Skiffle Spotify playlist? Of course I have. Of course you have. Of course have. I have. All right, I'll put a link in there. Yeah, of course I have. Yeah, 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 for sure. That's good. I need to investigate Skiffle. Yeah. What qualifies as Skiffle then? What do you need to <clears> be? Have you got to have a washboard? Have you got to. You need a guitar. You need a T chest bass. If you know what a T chest bass is. Right. Yeah. So you get you know what a T chest is, don't sure. you? Turn it upside down. Yeah. You put a hole in the middle. Yeah. You put a bit of baler twine or a very strong string yes. through the hole in the middle of a knot on it so it pulls and you get a broom pole and you stick the broom pole on the, on a hole in the corner of the tea chest and you put a bit of string to it and it makes a bit of a dum, 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 dum noise depending on how much string you hold down to the yeah. broom pole like a rhythm then you get a, a washboard uh, and uh, that's it really no drums no brass instruments no keyboards just those all uh, the percussion is coming from the washboard yeah right. well if you think about Elvis Presley's Sun Session recordings who played drums on the Sun Sessions I don't know. Nobody. All oh, the right. percussion is coming from the bass, oh. from the slap bass. There's no, there's no drums on them at all. Really? Yeah. It's just three guys. It's two guitarists. Mystery it's, Train. Has yeah, got no Mystery drums. Train's got no drums. Wow. It's, a, it's all Bill Black playing the bass. Right. And in that sense, rockabilly is the equivalent in America. Not in the same sense culturally, but in the same kind of. As I say, they're synonymous, and they kind of come and go in the same period between '56 and '59. Yeah. They're gone, and it's moved on to other bigger things. But um, skiffle doesn't happen in the United States of America at all, because what skiffle is, it's basically it's a playground craze. I mean, you know, when Lonnie Donegan has a hit in '56, early '56, with Rock Island Line, yeah, and he goes on the road. He's playing... Uh, was he a Brit then? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Born in Scotland, but he's lived most of his life in the East End of London. Hence the name. Lonnie Donnie. His mum's Irish. His dad's Scottish. He's in a trad jazz band okay. with Chris Barber. He's the banjo player. And um, because they're learning these songs from the original recordings, there's no way to learn these songs other than listening close to the original recordings. Recordings made in the 1920s. Uh, in America, it was all made on one microphone. So consequently, the musicians had to blow really hard to get on the get on the recording. So these guys, 20, 30 years later in the UK, are listening and thinking, oh, that's how you do it, you blow really hard. So they're doing the gigs, they're blowing the shit out of the instruments. Consequently, after about 30 minutes, their lips are so numb they can't play. So not to lose the audience, they put down their brass instruments, they pick up acoustic guitars, and they play lead belly songs. Hmm. And this is what becomes skiffle, this so-called breakdown session, playing these lead belly songs. So Donegan records Rock Island Line and a New Orleans jazz record with Chris Barber in 54. But when he goes out on tour, Donegan, after he's had a hit with it, because it doesn't sound like anything else on the radio, he's playing variety halls. He's playing two shows, five nights, two shows a night. George Harrison is 13, he goes every night. McCartney's 14, he goes on the Friday night. 
and Lennon's 16, he doesn't go, but he forms his skiffle band a week later. Hmm. And multiply that by a 1,000, and they're all in that age group. They're all in that age group. And so consequently, when Chuck Berry turns up six months later and all these songs are just free chords, the transition is seamless. Yeah. But what happens then is, in the United States of America, white kids don't start picking up acoustic guitars and learning free chords in them until the folk revival, which starts to happen until 59. Okay? So what you've got is you've got a load of British boys who are 18 months to two years ahead of their white American counterparts. So when the Beatles break the US in 63, there's already a road-hardened cohort of bands who've been playing since they were 13, 14 years old right. to come in behind the Beatles. The whole of the British invasion of the United States of America is based on the nursery of Skiffle. There you go. Without Skiffle, none of that. In fact, I would argue everything up to punk is its roots in Skiffle because uh, one of the guys in ABBA was in a Skiffle band. Dr. Feelgood was made of an amalgamation of two Skiffle bands. Jimmy Page, famously, there's a clip of him on TV, yeah. age 14, playing Mama Don't Allow No Skiffle playing around here with Hugh Weldon interviewing him. Oh, yeah. I yeah. think I've seen yep, that. Yep, 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 yep. You know, so wow. Skiffle is, is the... We can blame Skiffle for everything. Everything, mate. Everything. Social media, yep. Skiffle. The Vietnam War. <laughs> Brexit, yep. Skiffle. Skiffle. No, Skiffle is the... the <laughs> and the reason they, they don't talk about it is because they were all 14. Yeah, okay. You know, if you're Jimmy Page, right... And you go to America in 68, 69 with Led Zeppelin for the first time. And the Rolling Stones say, who inspired you to pick up a guitar? You ain't going to say Lonnie Donegan, are you? You're going to say <laughs> Muddy Waters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. And that story, that story needed to be told. So in, in a nutshell, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, I'm trying to light on things that I think are important that aren't getting attention and try and whether I'm writing a song as I say or, or, or you know might be the fact that I know all of the words to the original greatest hits of the Carpenters album mm-hmm. which I was sorting out my lock up and I was driving back and forth singing along you know what's your Day. favourite track on oh that? Rainy Days and Mondays always get me down what a great song that is what a great song funny how I always wind up here with you you know come and find the one who loves me you know it's just just great great song great songwriting as well yeah and beautifully sang by Karen Carpenter what a voice you know that song was originally called Groupie? Right. No, I didn't know Oh, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's written by Leon Russell. And, ah, and I'm reading his book at the moment. Yeah, he wrote it with, come on, what was the woman that he had a scene with? I Rita Coolidge. Oh, Rita okay. Coolidge, okay. They wrote and it's originally Groupie, yeah. Hmm. And there's a great version by Delaney and Bonnie, if you've not heard it. Oh, man, you've I'll got it here. It it's got Bronnie Brown on. She's singing it like Aretha. I was in a... I was in a record store in America somewhere it was on and I'm like I'd only heard the Carpenters version she sings you know what to do to make you come again she's taught, she's kind of like it's a completely different angle it's actually called Groupie I mean Karen Carpenter is a beautiful version but Bonnie Bramlett uh, it's one of those times where you have to you know tip your hat yeah I'm checking my account at the memory bank the memory bank the memory bank we're thanking you for banking all your memories I'd like to take out a happy memory thanks The memory bank, the memory bank Oh, I'm sorry, but you're very overdrawn I will repay with interest when I get back up on my happy feet The memory bank, the memory bank I'm very sorry, but we're closing your account My what? Where am I? The memory bank, the memory bank We're the nice bank, would you like to bank with us? Can I ask you finally, though, about um, your opportunity to meet Bob Dylan that you ran away from? I did. 
and explain how and why you felt you had to run from Bobbles. Bob Dylan is a giant in most of our lives, isn't he? He's kind of like too much. He might be too much. Um, (laughs) And I, I don't know. What would you say if you met Bob Dylan? Hi, Bob, I like your records. What would you say to him? I'm purposefully not gone to see Dylan. I don't want it spoiled. Right? Never seen him live? Yeah, I have, yeah. Oh, yeah. But up to this point, I'd not. Oh, I see. So I get some tickets to go and see him at Hammersmith Odeon. And um, my drummer at the time uh, was going out with Chrissy Hind. Chrissy Hind was there, mm. right? She disappears off backstage and she comes back before the show starts and she said, you know, you must come and see Bob after the show. I'm sure he'd love to meet you. So I spend the entire show thinking, what the fuck am I going to say to Bob Dylan? Hi, I'm Billy Bragg. I'm right song. Like, oh, no, 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 no. So at the end of the gig, I was just left like a rocket, just went out and, and just couldn't face it. And the funny thing is, while we were making Mermaid Avenue, um, this is the record you did yeah, with Wilco. Wilco, yeah, in Chicago. We were, routine, we were supposed to be routine in it, but we ended up, I think we were called the California Stars that week. But while we were there, I think it might have been the first day we were in the studio that night, Dylan was playing at a, a club. Uh, I can't remember. I played there opposite Wrigley Field. And Dylan was playing, and I did manage to blag tickets. He was really good. I thought he was really great. He was waggling his leg like Elvis. Uh-huh. And the Wilcos were saying to him, look, he's doing an Elvis thing. I'm like, no, 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 he's not good. He's trying to keep his circulation going. He's got a dead <laughs> leg. I've done that. That's what he's, But he was really good. And they were just bugging me to go backstage and ask Bob Dylan to come to the studio and play these Woody Guthrie songs with us. And I just said to him, we're in the studio with Woody Guthrie, okay? Isn't that enough? Isn't it enough? We get, what would it be like if he come down? What would we do? What would we do? And they were like, oh, yeah, what would we do? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, okay. Let's just, let's just, let's just keep focused yeah. on what we're doing. We've got the, we're in the studio with the little guy anyway, okay, with Woody. Let's just keep focused on the little guy. That's, our, that's what our work is here. That was your nickname for him, was it? Yeah, well, was... that's what we, called, we referred to him. Yeah, the little guy. Okay. Yeah, what would the little guy do? And have you thought, though, now what you would say? At some point, you've got to meet Bobbles, surely. Bob Dylan has got to come and... Well, Adam, he mentioned me in his book. Have a little powwow. That's right. You've got to mention in I Chronicles. I've got to mention in Chronicles with regard to the Woody lyrics. So I'm satisfied with that, mate. That's pretty good. You know one of the nicest things anyone ever said to me? What? I know who you are, Bill. It's okay. You don't have to tell me. You know who said that to me? Who? David fucking Bowie. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I was doing a DJ thing. And he, uh, I had this weird gig. I got this weird gig being a DJ uh, in drive time on Radio 2 when Johnny Walker was suspended for, I think he was snorting coke on the cover of the News of the World. Johnny. Yeah. And he got suspended and he, I knew his producer. He said, could you come in for a week and play some records or something? I'm going to lose my gig. I'm like, yeah, if you like. So I did that and eight months later I was still there. And they were getting in depths when I went on. I'm like, you can't get, I am the depth. You can't get in. But I did all these amazing, met all these amazing people. And among them was Bowie. He came in and we had a chat and uh, and I thought, well, I better explain to him that I'm not just a DJ. In case he thinks I'm just a DJ. Yeah, I'm, yeah. And I'm Billy Bragg. I'm a singer. Song. He's like, oh, he sort of patted me. I know who you are, Bill. I was like, whoa, good <laughs> one. Bowie knows who I am. I went home to the missus. I was like, cool. And did you get to ask him things that you'd always wanted to ask or was it just a sort of easygoing conversation? It was a relatively easygoing conversation for two reasons. One, it was Radio 2. Yes. And two, he was David Bowie. Yeah. 
and I'm Billy Bragg. So I thought, I don't want to get all Billy Bragg on his arms. Okay. okay. <laughs> and what's the first thing he said to me when we finished? I thought we were going to talk about politics, Bill. I've got a load of political answers for you. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you should have said, mate. You should have said. Because he'd had a go at Blair at the time for um, supporting China against the Dalai Lama. Uh-huh. He'd had a bit of that. There was that going on. And I thought, maybe I shouldn't. I don't want to don't want to spoil it for everyone. I don't want to fuck him off, you know. So I kept... Because it's, it's kind of a strange job. You know, one week I'm I'm doing him and the next week I'm doing the Dixie Chicks. Sure. You know, or some... Uh, the Mavericks. I ended up at the end of that year with more Mavericks CDs than you could shake a stick at, you know. I was I, I was the hero of our uh, school uh, Christmas fate. People loved them CDs. Dance the night away. Oh, mate. Can't... I see. I went to, the, I to interviewed him at the Albert Hall. It was massive. But in the end, I was like, "Look, this really isn't my my job. You know, I'm not a DJ. I'm only doing this to help you out. I really miss my my weekends up as well. West Ham yeah, Saturdays. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't want to. You know, I'm a I'm a poacher. I'm not a gamekeeper. I'm really sorry. Yeah. But uh, and if it's only where we move to, I said, "Look, I'm moving to Dorset next week. That's it. All right." And, f- and happily, they got Johnny back. By that time, Johnny came back, picked up where he left off. All good. I bet you were good at it, though. And I enjoyed it. There I was did always, enjoy it. Uh, there's always podcasting. There is always podcasting. Again, <laughs> I have, uh, I do have a line in waiting for the great leap forward. Yeah. Uh, at the end of that, or I mess around with the, you know, if no one out there understands, start your own bloody podcast and cut out the middleman. So there's always, you know, the possibility of it. But I'm writing. I like writing books. I kind of enjoy writing books. Yeah. You know, when writing a skiffle book, I spent hours in the British Library going through old copies of Melody Maker and stuff like that and digging around all that and I can't really, I kind of enjoyed all that the okay. archivist in me yeah. kind of enjoyed all that kind of stuff so I don't know if I've got the the stamina to keep going on a podcast oh I don't, I don't know. know I think you'd be alright you think? yeah <laughs> wait this is an advert for Squarespace Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Continue. As long as you don't make me sound like a cunt, I don't mind what you do. Wow. Hey, welcome back, podcats. Billy Bragg there. And I'm very grateful that he gave up his time to talk to me and be so friendly, especially as I really screwed up that day. You know, I say... From time to time, I tell you 
especially when I put episodes out years after they were recorded, how disorganized I am. And maybe you think that I'm being disingenuous, but I'm not. I am disorganized. I'm not proud of the fact. Seamus does what he can, but he's in New York. So often it's down to me to keep the show on the road and often I screw up. And that was one of those days that I did when I was supposed to be talking to Billy, had it down in my diary as 2 p.m. Got on the 11.30 train that would get me into London with just enough time to get over to King's Cross where we were recording for 2 p.m. And as I got on the train, I got a text from Ted Cummings, who was wrangling Billy that day. And Ted said, uh, looking forward to seeing you at midday. And I had a little flash of kind of indignation, like, no, what? No, it's 2 p.m. And then I had to go back and check my emails. Sure enough, it was midday. Texted back, explained the situation. And Ted was so nice about it, as was Billy. And I really appreciate it. A few links in today's description. Firstly, to Billy's website, where you can find his tour dates and all sorts of other info about his releases. There is a link in the description to that interview that me and Joe did with Billy at Glastonbury in 2000. Whoa, I mean, that really was another world. There is a link to Billy's Skiffle playlist on Spotify. There's a link to that amazing video of Jimmy Page, aged 13, with his Skiffle band playing Mama Don't Want to Skiffle Anymore, as well as Cotton Fields, and having a very engagingly stilted interview with Hugh Weldon. There is a link to a live version of Billy playing Tank Park Salute, the song he wrote about his dad, or the song that he realised was about his dad after he'd started writing it. Rosie, shall I let you off the lead? There's no one around. Here, look. Rosie, what do you think? If I let you off, will you promise to continue walking? No. All right, well, I don't know. Do your best. There's also a link to a short clip from that Neil Young documentary, Harvest Time. Hours of home movie footage shot around the time that Neil Young was recording Harvest. I haven't yet managed to figure out where you can see the whole film Uh, but I will keep searching because it looks terrific if you're a Neil Young fan I imagine it would be sweet sweet music flavored goo pudding how are you doing anyway podcats I didn't ask you at the very beginning I apologize I hope you're doing well soldiering on Plains, maybe from Lakenheath. God, that is a long way away in the sky. So I'm going to head back. Thank you very much once again to Billy Bragg and to Ted. Thanks to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for conversation editing and his always invaluable production support. That's receding a little bit. Thanks to Helen Green. She does the artwork for the podcast. Thank you, Helen. Thanks to Acast 
for all their hard work, keeping the show on the road with the sponsors. But thanks most of all to you. You listened right to the end. And yes, it isn't absolutely essential stuff. But, you know, it strengthens our bond. And that's, at the end of the day, the main thing. And that's why I think it's time we had a hug. May I approach? Hey. Good to see you. Until next time, we share the same outer space. Take care. I love you. Bye!